Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome to another uh, exciting uh, opportunity uh, at uh, our Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Um, it's with a distinct sense of pleasure that uh, I have the privilege of introducing uh, Dr. Phil Shainer uh, as uh, today's speaker. Um, first off, I'd like to just mention, as required, that Dr. Shainer doesn't have any financial interests uh, regarding his topic. He reports he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and he attests he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, I've known Phil now since, uh, well, before he joined us. He joined us in 2010. Uh, he actually has deep roots in New England. Uh, he was born in Boston at Mass General. Won't hold that against him too much. Uh, and then after uh, touring around in uh, the academic world at different places, including following his, you know, being a, a child, you have to follow your parents, and so they were down at NIH for a while. In any case, he eventually trained at Brown University and um, then moved on for an MD-PhD, which he did at Michigan, um, a very illustrious activity there. Moved on to the University of Alabama, where he was chief resident, and then joined us in 2010. Uh, in the last four years that he's been here, he has uh, co-authored and published one paper per year on a very, uh, very, uh, uh, what's the word I'd like? And uh, it's a pattern that we should all try to emulate. Uh, so it's really wonderful. Um, he is becoming increasingly nationally prominent in many respects. Um, he is currently serving on the ACR's Appropriateness Criteria Committee uh, on its expert panel in lung cancer. Uh, he all, uh, currently serves as a referee on uh, several journals. Uh, he is our course director for the Thoracic Radiation Oncology Elective, so he's developing an increasing teaching experience. Uh, and he's also very success successful in the research arena, uh, having um, uh, ex executed uh, beautifully an NCCC pilot grant. And he currently serves on um, Hal Schwartz's PPG grant, uh, PO1, on no less than three separate, um, three separate topics. So Phil is a very busy guy. He works extremely hard. He's here late at night a lot, and uh, I, I can't express to you what a wonderfully warm and personable and charming guy he is, even though he works so incredibly hard. So without saying anything further, I'd like to say thank you for being here, and uh, we're looking forward to this talk very much. All right, now. Uh, thanks for that uh, kind introduction. So um, today we're going to be talking about um, oropharyngeal cancer, in particular uh, focusing on that uh, associated with HPV. And as Alan said, I don't have anything to disclose. And for those of you who don't spend their time staring into people's mouths and noses, um, uh, squamous cell carcinoma is generally of the head and neck um, are a group of uh, mucosal malignancies that are derived from uh, squamous epithelium, and, and they display distinct um, clinical uh, behavior really related to both anatomy and pathophysiology, and, and are classically grouped um, into anatomical subgroups, as you can see here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can use the mouse here. So oral cavity, distinct from the pharyngeal malignancies, the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, the hypopharynx. Um, and today we're going to be focusing primarily on the oropharynx, uh, an area um, comprised of a number of subsites, importantly the base of tongue in which reside the lingual tonsils, um, the soft palate, the tonsillar pillars, um, and importantly the, the palatine tonsils. Um, and head and neck cancer, uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck um, as a group globally in 2008 is the seventh most common cancer uh, in men. It's about the 12th in women. Um, and you can see um, it has a significant impact with 550,000 cases per year estimated in 2008, the majority in men, uh, and um, a significant number of those succumbing to disease, 305,000 per year in the U.S., much more modest number. You can see here the pharyngeal component um, here uh, being 
Um, uh, in the 170,000 range, I can't see it well. And then down here uh, in the, uh, the pharynx here, comprising nasopharynx, oropharynx, and hypopharynx, but the majority of these being uh, the oropharynx. And so uh, this is sort of the worst parenting in the world slide. Um, but uh, the, you know, classically, these malignancies are thought associated with tobacco and alcohol. And this seems crazy, but I actually had a patient tell me that she started smoking at the age of seven. Her mom would give her cigarettes after chores to go smoke behind the barn. And so um, she was in her 70s, so maybe this is a, an older style of parenting. But, but um, to get a sense of uh, how significant uh, tobacco and alcohol are in this disease, uh, this is a, a case control study um, from uh, a 14-center uh, uh, database maintained by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Uh, and as you can see here, um, looking, looking at uh, the oropharynx specifically, uh, the, uh, maybe I'm going to try and use this. This is maybe better. Uh, so the odds ratio, um, basically, of developing an oropharyngeal malignancy after uh, um, consuming tobacco is about three, and the population attributable risk is 29.7. Alcohol alone is not a significant contributor, but jointly, uh, it dramatically increases the odds of developing this cancer, um, and this is a factor that uh, it, it looks at whether this is an additive or synergistic effect, and um, in, it, in fact, is synergistic. And so, alcohol and uh, tobacco together are felt to result in about 75% of uh, these malignancies. And if you actually take out the um, just as for all uh, upper airway uh, digestive tract cancers, but if you take out the tobacco and alcohol component, um, in other words, the population attributable risk, then uh, these malignancies become less uh, prevalent than melanoma. And so it's a profound contributor. Uh, but it became apparent in the early 1980s that some of these were associated with um, HPV. Um, and uh, case studies in the 80s and 90s uh, demonstrated an association. And by the early 2000s, uh, there was evidence really demonstrating uh, evidence of a causal link. Uh, in fact, that these HPV-associated oropharyngeal malignancies uh, were distinct in both, um, well, in their pathologic, molecular, and clinical um, uh, behavior. And this is a, a study by Maura Gillison out of Johns Hopkins, in which he looked at a whole group of head and neck squamous cell carcinomas for which they had tissue encompassing um, oropharynx and others, and looked via PCR for the presence of HPV and found that if one had an oropharyngeal um, primary in the HPV subgroup, one was much more likely to have an oropharyngeal primary than the HPV negative subgroup with a, an odds ratio of about 10. Um, these, if you had an HPV-associated malignancy, also, much more likely to be a poor grade in basaloid, and in fact, not shown here, but, but also demonstrated a different um, profile in terms of p53 mutations. And so beyond um, these associations, uh, importantly, uh, they and others demonstrated in these small retrospective series that the uh, clinical outcome after treatment was different with the HPV-associated uh, malignancy is doing much better uh, in this case in terms of um, overall survival. And so what is HPV? It's uh, an epitheliotropic, double-stranded, non-enveloped DNA virus. Uh, it is subdivided into mucosal and cutaneous groups, but perhaps more importantly into groups associated by oncogenic risk. Uh, there are about 200 genotypes. Uh, and the ones we're going to focus on here are those that are uh, categorized into the high oncogenic risk group, group one in the IRAC, meaning carcinogenic in humans. And you can see a number of them there, many of which are associated with cervical and genital cancers. But uh, in head and neck cancer, the vast majority have been found to be associated with HPV-16. So 80 to 90 percent of these malignancies um, uh, demonstrate DNA positivity for uh, HPV. And all other genotypes really comprise less than 5 percent. Um, and so uh, what's the pathogenesis of this disease? 
Well, uh, the uh, viral oncoproteins E6 and E7 are, are sort of most important in um, generation of uh, the malignant phenotype. Uh, and as you can see here, uh, the uh, E7 protein acts on the retinoblastoma pathway. Um, oops, Move forward here. Uh, and you can see that uh, typically in the absence of growth signals, uh, the retinoblastoma protein here is sequestering uh, the transcription factor E2F and cells maintained in this uh, growth arrest phase. But in the presence of growth signals, that uh, interaction is dissociated by phosphorylation, and E2F um, <coughs> then uh, functions as a signal. Um, uh, functions as a transcriptional regulator to upregulate proteins involved in um, cell growth. Importantly, P16 uh, is upregulated after E2F activation. And this, we'll come back to this, but this has been used extensively as a surrogate for the presence of HPV DNA. And that's because the E7 protein here um, inactivates uh, the retinoblastoma protein just uh, akin to a growth signal, but it allows for basically constitutive activation of the E2F protein and thus um, uh, growth signaling. Uh, the E6 protein interacts with the P53 pathway. You can see here in the absence of DNA damage, P53 is ubiquitinated and uh, cells um, are basically allowed to uh, go on um, to cell proliferation, but in the presence of DNA damage, uh, signaling um, interacts with uh, the P53 and, and MDM2, MDM, uh, uh, and P53 is allowed to uh, tetramerize, uh, and depending on the amount of DNA damage, uh, basically cells either uh, enter a growth arrest phase where repair can occur or uh, apoptosis. And the E6 protein uh, basically allows um, the P53 uh, to uh, basically be sort of constitutively um, inactivated and uh, patient uh, cells uh, go on to display again constitutive phase progression cell proliferation. So we talked a bit about uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma generally um, in terms of the, the epidemiology of the disease. Uh, but when one looks very closely at the epidemiology uh, of the oropharyngeal HPV-associated malignancy, uh, while the incidence of other uh, head and neck cancers are decreasing, likely due in uh, Western countries to implementation of smoking cessation, uh, the incidence of the HPV associated appears to be rising. And this is demonstrated in, a, in an interesting paper from 2011. And you can see here that uh, what was uh, the Chaturvedi's group did was take um, cancers from the SEER tissue registry. So uh, the registry program uh, that collects data from Iowa, uh, LA, and Hawaii, and assessed HPV DNA presence by a number of different techniques. And what they found was that the incidence of HPV-associated oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma increased dramatically by 225% over the course of 1980-2004, whereas the HPV-negative DNA uh, associated oropharyngeal cancer um, uh, was decreasing, and you can see that here, that the oropharyngeal uh, cancer overall is increasing, and you can see that the HPV-positive oropharyngeal malignancies are increasing and the HPV-negative are decreasing. Um, and interestingly, they then went back to uh, nine different registries and projected the um, outcomes applied to the 2008 population, uh, basically to uh, 2020, 2030 down the road. And what you can see is that the rate of um, HPV-associated oropharyngeal malignancies is expected really to skyrocket over the, pex, um, the next 15 years or so, exceeding that of um, cervical cancers. And, and here as well, you can see relative to oral cavity, larynx, and other pharyngeal malignancies, um, the uh, HPV-associated oropharyngeal cancers are increasing dramatically, whereas these other cancers are either stagnant or decreasing. And so this isn't just a US phenomenon. 
the same group led by Chaturvedi in 2013 uh, took information from a database encompassing um, a number, uh, really, of databases across the world. And as you can see here, um, across uh, you know, the world, in Japan, Australia, uh, the Netherlands, um, the uh, annual percent change of the oral pharyngeal malignancies is increasing, uh, whereas oral cavity malignancies are increasing at a slower rate or even decreasing. So, so globally, um, as well as in the United States, the HPV-associated oral pharyngeal malignancies uh, are dramatically increasing in incidence. Um, and the question is uh, important as to, well, or fringe malignancies in general, uh, what percentage of them are associated with HPV positivity? Worldwide, it's estimated that about 25% of all or fringe malignancies of that um, initial number we talked about are related to HPVs, but it very much differs by continent. Um, North America, 56%, Australia, 45%, and other places much lower. And of course, uh, the question arises, uh, if HPV-associated or pharyngeal cancer is on the rise, um, how do people get these cancers? And of course, um, oral HPV infection uh, is the etiology, and so a number of studies have investigated who has this infection uh, in the United States um, and um, what uh, are risk factors for this infection. So as you can see, in the United States, there's a peak prevalence in the 30s and 60s of oral HPV infection, much higher prevalence in men. Um, and uh, the infection uh, associates, is associated with increased number of sexual partners sort of across the board, as this is fundamentally a sexually transmitted disease. Um, and uh, HPV-negative or pharyngeal cancers and HPV-positive or pharyngeal cancers really have distinct risk profiles, as one might guess, given that their etiologies are fundamentally different, tobacco, alcohol versus um, oral HPV infection. And in this study, uh, trying to get a sense of um, what the risk factors are for HPV versus HPV-negative or pharyngeal squamous um, Cancers. This is a case control study, again, out of Maura Gillison's group, um, looking at um, HPV uh, positive and negative uh, or pharyngeal uh, cancers uh, and um, analyzing with the presence of HPV via PCR, and then attempting to look at a number of patient uh, factors, including socioeconomic status, marital status, tooth loss, which is a good surrogate actually for the presence of HPV negative oral pharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma um, relating to oral hygiene and probably socioeconomic status and therefore uh, tobacco and alcohol use. Um, and what they found uh, was that there were really distinct clinical uh, profiles for individuals who had these different malignancies. As you can see here, for the HPV-negative oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas, uh, the odds ratio of developing this um, in uh, the presence of uh, tobacco uh, was obviously uh, high. As you increase the number of pack years, the likelihood that you're going to have an HPV-negative oropharyngeal malignancy uh, increases dramatically, um, sort of less dramatic with alcohol and dentition, but um, uh, of course, importantly, uh, the reverse is true with HPV positive. The higher the number of lifetime oral sex partners, the higher likelihood of development of HPV positive oral pharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas. Uh, marijuana here was kind of a wash. Um, but uh, the bottom line being that these are really distinct clinical entities in terms of their pathophysiology, and therefore um, uh, the individuals who develop these cancers also differ significantly, and, and they represent a very a different population of, of individuals. And so we've sort of talked about um, the We've talked about the pathophysiology, uh, the overall epidemiology, um, it's sort of the underlying kind of etiology of this disease, and then the risk profile of individuals who therefore develop it. But as I discussed or alluded to earlier in Maura Gillison's paper, and clinically the most important um, finding over the past 20 years is that uh, these cancers respond very differently to therapy, and their clinical prognosis is quite different, likely underlying uh, the separate pathophysiology. And this is 
uh, one of the more uh, important analyses, there were a lot of retrospective analyses, and this is as well, but it, it took data from a carefully controlled prospective analysis, RTOG0, prospective trial rather, RTOG0129, which uh, fundamentally was not asking a question related to HPV. Um, was looking at uh, in the context of locally advanced head and squamous cell carcinomas of oral pharynx, larynx, uh, oral cavity, whether different radiation therapy regimens are more or less effective. Uh, and you can see the different arms here, a very standard radiation, radiation therapy um, uh, regimen, 70 gray and 35 fractions, uh, with uh, concurrent cisplatin and then an accelerated uh, version. And, and what they did here was they took this perspective data and retrospectively analyzed um, the oropharyngeal subset uh, post hoc. Uh, and uh, because certainly early on and still, uh, there's a question as to the significance of the presence of HPV DNA as opposed to upregulation of the P16 protein. Um, they looked at both here. And of course, uh, you know, the presence of integration of HPV does not necessarily mean that the virus is active. Similarly, you can get upregulation of the P16 protein in the absence of uh, HPV DNA um, integration and uh, function of the viral oncoproteins. Uh, but a number of studies, including this one, really demonstrated high concurrence between the presence of HPV DNA and upregulation of P16 in oropharyngeal malignancies. And most of the cooperative groups, such as the NRG, it used to be RTOG, have really adopted immunohistochemistry uh, using P16 as a functional surrogate for HPV, although HPV uh, DNA is still looked at. But uh, in this particular study, uh, about 60% of the patients enrolled had oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma, and they were able to determine the HPV status uh, in um, 323, uh, of which about 64% uh, had HPV-positive oral pharyngeal malignancies, um, generally associated, as one might expect, given the different etiologies and sort of clinical risk profile uh, with different prognostic factors, which are important in clinical outcomes. Uh, so HPV-positive individuals tend to be individuals who are younger age, uh, higher performance status. Uh, biologically, they have smaller tumors, and the primary tumors are they tend to have more extensive nodal disease, um, and uh, they also tend to have a much lower probability of uh, tobacco use, either never smokers or uh, light smokers. Um, and uh, as you can see here, what became apparent, and look at the central lines here, there's a 94% confidence intervals, which make it a little complicated, but um, as you can see here, whether or not one looks at tumors according to uh, P16 or HPV status, uh, the outcomes of individuals uh, in terms of overall survival for HPV-positive malignancies far superior after they receive chemoradiotherapy in either arm than HPV-negative malignancies. And even after adjustment for those higher, um, basically a, a higher um, uh, performance status and, and others that uh, prognosticate for uh, better clinical outcomes, even after uh, covariate adjustment for those factors, uh, the odds risk of survival if one had an HPV-positive malignancy was almost two-and-a-half-fold higher uh, than if one had an HPV-negative malignancy, and basically corresponding to about a 60% uh, diminishment in the risk of death. Uh, and these other factors, as I said, about 10%. Um, similarly, uh, this survival benefit was felt uh, to be related primarily to uh, local regional uh, relapse, uh, differences in local regional relapse. So uh, in individuals who had um, HPV-positive malignancies, the likelihood of failing after definitive chemoradiotherapy was much, much lower at 14% relative to those who had HPV-negative malignancies. So uh, the translation in overall survival is likely related to uh, improvement in local regional control, whereas there really wasn't any significant difference in in, uh, distant metastatic failure, and that tends to be the clinical pattern that one sees with these malignancies is that they tend to fail distantly. Um, and you can see here, um, basically, uh, there was uh, no difference um, 
in failure, and importantly, tobacco smoking, whether or not you uh, had an HPV-positive or HPV-negative malignancy, was independently associated with a decrement in overall survival, progression-free survival, um, and the risk of death essentially increased about 1% per increase of pack year smoking. So, Although uh, individuals who have HPV-positive malignancies um, in general tend to have a lower likelihood of being heavy smokers, the presence of tobacco use uh, diminishes the odds of um, curative therapy being curative, likely because of uh, different pathophysiology. Um, and in this trial, uh, because of this, this analysis, rather, because of the... Uh, excellent outcomes with oropharyngeal malignancies. Uh, they performed a recursive partitioning analysis uh, looking at a number of different factors, age, tumor stage, nodal stage, um, race, smoking status, HPV status, and, and attempted to delineate which factors were important for survival in order to create basically risk groups. And as you can see here, uh, the most important determinant of survival was HPV positive versus HPV negative status. In this uh, partitioning analysis, pack year smoking, also important. They used a cut point of 10 pack years, although other studies have used different cut points. And, and interestingly, uh, in the HPV positive subgroup, nodal status was important for survival, the risk of death, uh, whereas the size of the primary, much more important um, in the uh, HPV negative subgroup. And you can see breaking uh, these um, sort of subgroups into distinct categories of low intermediate risk um, resulted in a uh, uh, significant difference in survival with the three-year overall survival for the low-risk group combining really any HPV-positive cancer that had less than 10 packages of smoking in this analysis regardless of uh, T or N staging. Um, and individuals who had a little higher um, greater than 10 packages of smoking um, who were HPV-positive um, and had a lower nodal disease burden, those individuals had an excellent three-year overall survival. Whereas if you were HPV-positive, um, had more than 10 pack years and had a higher nodal disease burden, or if you were HPV-negative, weren't a heavy smoker and had lower size primary tumors, fell into this intermediate risk category with a three-year overall survival of 71%. And in the subgroup that was HPV-negative and were uh, very heavy heavy smokers greater than 10 pack years, or had very advanced local disease, survival after definitive chemoradiotherapy was quite poor at 46%. And so this was sort of a, a beginning foray into trying to um, delineate different subgroups, uh, those who are both HPV positive and, and HPV negative, um, who uh, respond quite differently to um, definitive chemoradiotherapy. And, and really the question uh, over the past 10 years um, has focused on this idea of really risk stratification. These are biologically different malignancies um, and um, a number of large studies have uh, akin to the ANG study I just discussed, uh, begun to examine uh, what factors are important in stratifying these individuals. Um, and one of those uh, came out of Princess Margaret Hospital in 2013, Brian and Sullivan group. Uh, and they looked at the ANG data and um, wanted to ask whether or not overall survival was the, uh, as important a determinant um, as uh, the um, uh, probability of development of distant metastases, which renders the cancer incurable, or perhaps relating more to disease-free survival. Other things, of course, beyond the cancer can contribute to um, overall survival. And this was a retrospective analysis of their very large database spanning 2001 to 2009, individuals who were treated curatively with radiotherapy or chemoradiotherapy. Uh, the beauty of Canada is that in very large uh, catchment areas, all of their patients are centralized. And so they can uh, develop these very large databases. Um, and they then determined uh, of these individuals who had oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma, uh, whether or not they were HPV positive, and ended up with 505 patients, of which the majority were HPV positive, had a reasonable follow-up. Uh, and looking at, um, in this group, what uh, outcome, uh, what uh, factors related to uh, the risk of uh, distant metastatic failure, obviously HPV positivity um, was um, uh, significantly improved outcomes. Uh, in their uh, 
study. Uh, interestingly, uh, both T-stage and N-stage, uh, as well as RT alone, as opposed to chemoradiotherapy, uh, were associated with uh, uh, basically a higher risk of distant metastatic failure, as one might expect, and smoking did not fall out uh, in their database, although um, likely still important. And they did a similar recursive partitioning analysis uh, to uh, ANG and RTOG0129 and came out with um, a really a different uh, uh, a different set of factors that determined uh, prognosis. As you can see here, the most important being, again, HPV positivity. Uh, and in the HPV positive group, they also found that um, nodal disease burden was important, but also tumor size. Uh, and they, in the HPV positive group, came up with uh, the sort of best risk a group with uh, three-year overall survival um, of 93% and local regional control of 95%. Um, with respect to, again, distant control, this is not related to overall survival. Uh, and that best risk group basically were individuals who had relatively low disease burden and relatively uh, low tumor burden, whereas those that had a higher tumor burden um, either in the nodes or um, either in the nodes uh, or uh, the primary uh, did more poorly. And in the HPV negative subgroup, uh, they uh, had similar discrimination. And clearly, differences in terms of uh, the risk of distant metastatic failure, uh, depending on whether one was in the low or high risk subgroup. Uh, and um, I think it's worth noting here that in the low risk subgroup, as you can see, uh, the N2C uh, group, which uh, in the staging of head and neck cancer is bilateral nodal disease, fell out as the low risk group. But if you actually look uh, in individuals who had a low smoking history who were N2C, those who had RT alone um, had a, a much higher probability of distant failure, uh, 49%, as opposed to those who got chemoradiotherapy, as one might expect, as RT alone will have no impact on um, generally a minimal impact on the risk of distant failure. And so, um, and so uh, that um, categorization uh, is questionable. But the bottom line is that one then uh, develops uh, these uh, different subgroups and begins to sort of stratify patients in terms of their overall risk. So in the HPV positive group and the ANG, um, smoking history, very important. Uh, and basically, if you're a very low uh, pack year smoker, uh, excellent overall survival. Uh, if you smoke more but have a low disease burden in the nodes, still excellent survival. Um, and in the O'Sullivan group, um, Smoking did not fall out as significant, but again, kind of lower disease burden, questionable N2C, but lower disease burden um, in general, uh, distant control uh, was um, excellent. And then as um, one uh, basically progresses in terms of disease burden, the distant control uh, becomes much lower. Uh, and also the likelihood of dying um, becomes much higher. Uh, and uh, we're not going to talk as much about the HPV negative uh, grouping here. And all of this sort of calls into question really the fundamental way that we um, think about malignancies, the TNM system, which uh, was developed in the 1950s uh, and really was a way to um, try and uh, categorize malignancies in terms of the extent of anatomical <coughs> disease. So uh, the T system and oropharynx, as you can see here, uh, T1 through T3 really are size criteria. So tumors smaller than two centimeters going up to tumors greater than four centimeters, more advanced tumors, um, direct invasion into adjacent structures. Similarly with nodes, uh, the uh, disease burden relates to the size of the nodes and how extensive they are. Are they on one side? Are they on both sides? I talked about the N2C criteria where you have a bilateral nodal uh, disease burden uh, in the previous uh, RPA analysis. Um, and, uh, you know, as is evident perhaps from uh, the prior um, RPA analyses from Princess Margaret and RTOG0129, there are other factors that begin to come into play, such as tobacco use. Uh, and, you know, classically, um, if you look at the AGCC7 TNM data uh, spanning 
individuals from 1990 to 1999, these are unstratified by HPV status, uh, and grouped into um, different stages, one, two, three, and four, uh, you see an excellent correlation in terms of the probability of survival over five years, depending on what group one falls in, and those groups um, as you can see here, relate to combinations of basically extent of the primary and extent of the nodal burden. And um, the question is, again, whether these uh, traditional uh, mechanisms of categorizing malignancies still hold in HPV-positive malignancies. The RPA analyses I talked about really suggest that there are different uh, low and high-risk criteria. Uh, and this is important in terms of how we think about designing clinical trials and applying um, prior uh, data from older clinical trials uh, that are stratified by stage. And so actually just this month, um, O'Sullivan et al. and uh, the Prentice Market Group again updated their series, so we saw the 2013 version, and um, really began to ask this question, uh, building on prior data, and again did an, a retrospective analysis, a, analysis of all of the oral pharyngeal malignancies that uh, they have in their database from 2001 now to 2010, and they determine HPV status via P16, uh, and uh, as I said now, uh, a sort of widely accepted surrogate for the presence of HPV DNA integration, uh, and then included really uh, all non-metastatic stages in this analysis, ended up with 810 patients, the majority of which were HPV positive, excellent follow-up. And what you can see here is that if one looks at the classical stage groupings, uh, as basically that uh, I showed you uh, from the AGC 7th, AGCC 7th TNM staging, uh, they do not hold in the HPV positive subset. The, the five-year overall survival for um, stage one, two, three, and four really overlap. You can see one, 88%, two, 78%, three, 71%, 4 74%. There's no statistically significant difference between these stages, really suggesting that uh, those RPA analyses now um, basically uh, looking at different risk profiles uh, are uh, valid and that the, the old TNM uh, method of classification uh, is not particularly useful in this subset of patients. If you look at the HPV negative subset here, you see what you'd expect, that there's a statistically significant difference between stage one, two, three, and four, and you have a, a relatively expected decrement in five-year overall survival from 70% down to 30%, which is what we see in stage four A, B, HPV negative or pharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas. Overall survival is quite poor. Um, and you can see in stage four um, a dramatic difference, 74% uh, of the likelihood of dying are profoundly different with, um, with uh, positive, uh, HPV positive malignancies. And then, just as I talked about before with RTG1129 and the prior analysis of the Princess Margaret data, they again repeated an RPA analysis and again including uh, a multitude of variables, most of which fell out in the prior analysis, only T and N. Um, staging uh, were valid, but in this uh, analysis with a larger data set, uh, smoking and age also uh, were important, statistically significant in terms of delineating risk groups. And so they've actually proposed a new staging system for HPV positive oral pharyngeal um, squamous cell carcinomas that relates to the um, outcomes uh, they've found in their data set. And in this RPA analysis, uh, of HPV, only HPV positive, the other two are looking at HPV positive relative to HPV negative, here focusing in on the HPV positive subset, you can see that um, T and N, uh, sort of T stage here, uh, still important, um, N stage still important, but uh, also pack years of smoking and um, age uh, becomes important as well. So in the earlier stage uh, malignancies, T1 to 3 and 0 to N2C, uh, a division whether or not one has smoked more or less than 20 pack years. and. Um, that division translates into differences in overall survival. This RPA analysis, I should say, was uh, uh, examining outcomes with respect to overall survival as opposed to distant metastatic failure in their prior uh, analysis of um, 2013. So again, getting at overall survival like in RTUG0129. Um, but the five-year median over survival, 89% versus 64% if one uh, had a greater than 20-pack year smoking. 
Uh, on the other hand, if one had a significant disease burden, either T4 disease or N3 disease, so a really bulky primary or extensive nodal disease burden, um, age became much more important. Those who were less than or equal to 70 had an overall survival of 57% and a five-year median overall survival of 40% in those who were older than 70. So um, again, incorporating uh, factors uh, outside of traditional tumor, anatomic tumor burden relationships in the primary and nodal status. And you can see here, um, looking at the uh, curves in relation to their staging system, group 1, 2, 3, and 4A. Uh, this is based on uh, those subgroups I just um, delineated, uh, which are here, again, for those who have forgotten. Um, group 1 being, again, relatively small primary, relatively low nodal disease burden, less than 20% uh, here, and similarly 2, 3, 4A. And 4B is their uh, new sort of classification for individuals who have uh, metastatic disease, so obviously incurable disease. And you can see that there's a statistically significant difference uh, in the survival curves for individuals who are in these different subgroups um, relative to the same analysis using the traditional TNM staging. So where does all of this lead us? I've sort of taken you through three sort of uh, large studies trying to get at prognosis in HPV-positive or pharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas, um, all to sort of ask the question, well, if these have different uh, prognoses and different factors considered prognoses uh, relate to these different prognoses, um, should we change therapy? Uh, and off-protocol, these uh, these malignancies are still, luckily, advanced malignancies are still treated with standard of care definitive chemoradiotherapy, 70 gray uh, of radiation therapy with concurrent chemotherapy. And uh, this is sort of exemplified by uh, the Gore-Tec 9902 study, which the majority of which were pharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas. And you can see here that uh, randomizing to different versions of chemoradiotherapy, but in the conventional chemoradiotherapy arm, uh, outcomes were uh, better um, in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival. And, um, and the bottom line being, um, conventional chemoradiotherapy, uh, still the standard uh, daily fractions, uh, two gray per fraction for 35 treatments uh, with um, concurrent cisplatin, although as in the Gore-Tex study, many, many variations have been tried, uh, still, still what's recommended, but uh, standard of care chemoradiotherapy is really horrible. So uh, you don't want it. It's incredibly toxic. This is an example of grade 3 mucositis, extremely common in the 6th or 7th week of chemoradiotherapy. Similarly, um, really significant dermatitis. And, and this profound toxicity has been quantified in a really interesting paper by Trotty, uh, published in 2007, where he um, and his group eventually, essentially tried to create a uh, novel system for delineating toxicity. But the bottom line here um, is that if you look at the uh, maximum toxicities and look at standard radiotherapy alone, um, and then you look at the odds of having similar sort of maximum toxicities uh, down in concurrent chemoradiotherapy, you can see that uh, the incidence of reported uh, grade three to four events jumps from 34% um, to 86%. And using their TAME system in this uh, graph, or this table rather, of acute toxicity, and that translates into almost a 500% increase in uh, acute toxicity. So just a profound level of uh, uh, toxicity. And the question is, um, is that still necessary in individuals who have these clearly positive uh, prognosis uh, uh, or pharyngeal malignancies related to HPV? Uh, and one um, of the ways uh, that uh, people um, have thought about diminishing toxicity is by using alternatives to cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, in this case, uh, uh, we're talking about um, the EGFR uh, pathway um, in which uh, binding to the epidermal growth factor receptor um, results in autophosphorylation and, and upregulation of uh, anabolic signals or growth signals. And this pathway is active in a, a significant number of um, head and neck squamous cell carcinomas uh, and was investigated initially in the Bonner trial 
Uh, for individuals who uh, had relatively poor performance status and were not felt to be good candidates for cytotoxic chemotherapy, um, with the hope that they would tolerate cetuximab uh, and um, experience relatively diminished toxicity. And in this trial, uh, individuals received either radiotherapy alone or radiotherapy plus cetuximab. And what was seen was an improvement in overall survival akin to the magnitude one sees with the addition of chemoradiotherapy to standard radiation therapy, about 9 to 10%. And the question as to whether or not cetuximab adds to toxicity, uh, skin reaction as those who have experienced this drug know is dramatically increased, although I can't see it at this angle. Um, if one looks at uh, dysphagia, uh, dysphagia here, uh, similar numbers, similarly uh, xerostomia, similar numbers. And so although there's some debate about this, uh, these data suggested that the addition of cetuximab to radiotherapy uh, did not result in the same kind of profound increase in acute and late toxicity that one sees with the addition of cytotoxic um, with uh, the addition of cytotoxic chemotherapy. And so uh, with this idea um, in mind, uh, early studies uh, began to investigate whether uh, deintensification of therapy was possible substituting cetuximab for uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy. And this is a trial that was reported at ASCO in 2014, uh, ECOG uh, 1308. And in this trial, they looked at uh, HPV positive individuals who had locally advanced oral pharyngeal cancer. Um, they used an induction regimen, which has now uh, fallen out of favor. It was designed prior to outcomes from a number of large randomized trials, such as design and paradigm, that really didn't demonstrate an improvement in overall survival or local regional control with induction. But regardless, what they attempted to do was to um, look at, um, basically, response, and if individuals had a complete response uh, reduced radiation therapy from about 70 gray to about 54 gray uh, concurrent with cetuximab. Um, if they didn't have a complete response, uh, they had a more standard regimen with um, cetuximab. So here, both dose-reducing radiation and substituting cetuximab for cytotoxic chemotherapy. And their outcomes in the lotus arm were very good at a median follow-up of almost two years, um, progression-free survival 84 um, percent and local control 94%, and especially in the low-risk subgroup uh, defined uh, by the ANG uh, paper, uh, the progression-free survival was 96%. So suggesting that dose reduction in this subgroup um, of uh, HPV-positive oral pharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas results in um, comparable outcomes to cytotoxic chemotherapy, potentially with improvements in long-term toxicity. And so uh, this uh, strategy is expand, has been expanded uh, and uh, was embraced by the RTOG uh, cooperative group um, and uh, resulted in RTOG 1016, which was fundamentally a non-inferiority trial, looking at, again, locally advanced squamous cell carcinomas of the oropharynx, um, where P16 positive, excluding very early malignancies that were, uh, have very good outcomes with radiation therapy alone. And in this trial, um, importantly, um, they included any smoking history, although they debated that. And you can see that uh, if you look at the different prognostic groups in the three uh, um, papers, I, the three analyses I presented to you, it really encompasses all of them, both the low and high risk group. And clearly, this was obviously designed uh, before the O'Sullivan and the, basically before the Princess Margaret data, uh, which shows, uh, again, a 40% five-year overall survival in individuals who are T4N3. And so in this trial, which basically randomizes patients to slightly, or randomized, because it's closed, slightly accelerated IMRT-based radiation therapy um, with two cycles of chemotherapy as opposed to three, versus the same radiation uh, therapy with cetuximab, um, there's sort of broad inclusion uh, despite ratification. And the question is whether or not we're going to see uh, comparable outcomes in both the low-risk and high-risk groups. And it'll be interesting to see whether that holds. And so this is one strategy um, that has been embraced um, uh, in order to diminish toxicity associated with a definitive therapy. And, and importantly, um, the primary goal here um, 
uh, again, comparable overall survival, but toxicity assessments are, are really critical in these studies, and there are large patient-reported and physician-reported outcome components. And this trial accrued faster than, I think, any RTOG trial in the past 10 years. It was incredibly popular. We enrolled uh, probably seven or eight patients to this trial, um, and they actually expanded accrual. Uh, and we don't have any outcomes yet. So. One strategy to de-intensify uh, treatment, substitute cetuximab for cytotoxic chemotherapy. Other strategies that are now uh, being investigated in, in large cooperative group settings are to remove chemotherapy entirely uh, and um, only do that in the uh, groups that appear to have excellent outcome with a low risk of distant metastases. So as um, we saw from the O'Sullivan 2013 paper, uh, the T1 to 3, N0 to N2B, with N2C uh, much more concerned in the RT versus chemoradiotherapy subgroup. Um, but uh, for all of these uh, low-risk subgroups with a low PACUR um, smoking, um, and relatively low disease burden, outcomes are excellent. And so the RTOG has developed energy, uh, now, now energy, uh, HN002, which includes uh, these uh, very low risk um, individuals. So HPV positive, less than or equal to 10 pack years, um, having a moderate disease burden uh, and an excellent performance status, and again, excluding N2C because of concerns about distant failure. Uh, and the absence of chemotherapy, uh, that could be an issue. And essentially randomizing individuals to dose-reduced radiation with uh, cisplatin um, or dose-reduced radiation alone. And you can see here uh, in a calculation of the biologic effective dose, uh, uh, basically um, a means by which we relate the effective dose of radiation based on the length of treatment as well as the quantity of radiation per day. You can see that the standard dose, 70 gray in uh, 35 fractions, um, results in um, a biologic effective dose uh, much higher than the two arms uh, in both the acute and late settings. Um, and so fundamentally, this is a dose reduction uh, in terms of radiation. Uh, and uh, in this arm, not only a dose reduction in radiation, but um, basically removal of the uh, toxicity effect that occurs from concurrent chemotherapy. And so this trial is open here. Uh, importantly, again, the uh, swallowing toxicity is in the primary outcome. Uh, we uh, I don't think I've enrolled anyone to this trial yet, but um, we uh, have it open at this point. And then looking at the standard things that one is going to look at, toxicity and outcome. So. Um, other strategies for deintensification, uh, people, uh, cooperative groups are beginning to investigate the idea of doing minim minimally invasive surgical resection and then attempting to stratify the HPV positive oral pharyngeal malignancies uh, based on uh, based on risk, and this is ECOG three three one one. And what you can see here is that in individuals who have uh, oral pharyngeal malignancies that are amenable to uh, surgery uh, via transoral resection, whether robotic or otherwise, uh, there is a randomization or basically a stratification whereby individuals who uh, have pathologically early stage disease get observation. Individuals who have an intermediate risk stage disease based on factors we haven't really talked about that relate to the postoperative setting are again randomized to different doses of radiation. 50 gray, which is a dose reduction of the standard, and 60 gray, which would be more standard postoperative radiation therapy. And those who happen to have very high-risk disease still get a very aggressive therapy. And these trials have both an efficacy and feasibility endpoint, um, looking at whether or not uh, individuals are going to fall into that intermediate risk group, because fundamentally the question here is, for that intermediate risk group, can one de-intensify adjuvant radiation therapy from uh, 60 gray to 50 gray. And so um, obviously there are, uh, I've talked about three strategies for dose deintensification, substitution of biologics, uh, deintensifying or omitting radiation therapy, uh, rather deintensifying radiation therapy or omitting chemotherapy in the very low risk subgroups, and then uh, trying to do sort of minimally invasive surgery with uh, minimal doses of radiation uh, in early subgroups. And, and those three trials 
uh, are just a few of the uh, large trials that are occurring all over the world. Uh, these are uh, a number of trials from um, Australia and uh, uh, Ireland, a number of places looking at uh, similar strategies to so the first strategy that RTOG 1016 employed, uh, substitution of cetuximab. Uh, there are other trials that, again, are primarily focusing on decreasing dose of radiation uh, as well as uh, chemotherapy and de-escalating both. And then, uh, similarly, trials that are uh, following the third strategy. We're looking at, in the post-operative setting, uh, can you get rid of chemotherapy for high-risk groups, just do radiation? Can you diminish the dose of radiation therapy? And so, uh, sort of the overview here is that, as we talked about initially, HPV-positive oropharyngeal malignancies are really uh, distinct in terms of their molecular pathogenesis. Um, they're distinct in terms of the risk factors that result in this disease, distinct in terms of the um, individual uh, risk profile. They're rapidly rising in incidence over the next 15 years, expected to sort of uh, escalate at a meteoric rate, uh, and distinct clinical entities that respond uh, to definitive therapy in a different way uh, and have much more favorable outcomes. Importantly, uh, the RPA analyses I talked about really are, are demonstrating that the TNM staging that we apply to this subset of malignancies uh, is um, perhaps uh, not appropriately representing prognostic outcomes in that one needs to consider both uh, smoking, uh, age, and disease burden differently. Uh, and of course, the uh, Prentice Market Group has now, has now proposed their own uh, version of a staging system to supplant TNM staging for uh, this malignancy. Um, and um, we've talked about multiple strategies that are being investigated to attempt to uh, keep uh, high efficacy outcomes with uh, while diminishing toxicity, so biologics, de-escalating intensity of radiation emitting chemotherapy, uh, or using minimally invasive versions of surgery and radiation therapy together. And I think that's it. Any questions? Yeah. The tumors or the patients that were getting the uh, EGFR uh, interference, mm -hmm. were, the, were was that, there any tests to look for EGFR activity in those? Um, so retrospectively looking at EGFR. So in uh, in 1016, uh, there's a I think there's a molecular analysis sort of looking at um, the presence or absence of EGFR activity, but not an initial screening. Yep. Since you're investigating in uh, different targeted therapies, and instead of using cetuximab, why don't you use something that uh, targets more of the HPV molecular pathogenesis? So, um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know of any large trials that are doing that at this point because, um, uh, you know, I think that right now the focus of the cooperative groups has been on. Um, uh, maintaining the efficacy of treatment, and I don't think there's a lot of data looking at combining um, potential therapeutic targets against HPV with radiation uh, and or chemotherapy. But that's certainly um, uh, something that is being investigated. Yeah? Would you speculate on what you think is the origin of the different Right, so there's a lot of uh, discussion about this, and I think it, it's really poorly understood. But uh, you know, the the sort of uh, mutagenic profile of um, tobacco, as opposed to the sort of uh, influence of the viral oncoproteins, is quite different. Uh, there, uh, these proteins, uh, these malignancies rather tend to have uh, very few p53 mutations uh, because uh, the obviously the pressure on the malignancies is different given uh, interference with the PVG3 pathway, uh, but that sort of multitude of um, uh, inactivation of uh, tumor suppressors and an activation of oncogenes uh, that occur with the uh, addition of uh, tobacco and alcohol likely render those tumors um, much more capable of uh, um, avoiding the cytotoxicity of chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And, and so and they clearly have distinct molecular profiles. Uh, and individuals who 
have um, a much higher smoking history, uh, again, likely have some of those uh, mutations um, in a subset of the clonogens, basically, and, and therefore resistance is higher. Well, I can understand um, examining these tumors for HPV before you decide how to treat, but I don't understand why they aren't just stratified or retrospectively looked at. I mean, why would you eliminate the HPV-negative tumors from targeted therapy trials? So they're, uh, they're not eliminated from targeted therapy trials. However, the, the, so the concern is that cetuximab is not as effective as cytotoxic chemotherapy. And therefore, the application of these targeted agents is cautiously being applied to individuals who have the best prognosis, because there is some data suggesting that outcomes, mostly retrospective, there's about 10 retrospective series right now, showing um, eight of them show uh, that uh, retrospectively, uh, cetuximab outcomes are poorer than cytotoxic chemotherapy without any sort of stratification. In head and neck squamous cell carcinomas that include other malignancies and oropharyngeal. So there's a lot of caution right now about using cetuximab as a substitute for cisplatin or um, uh, various other combinations uh, because of retrospective data suggesting it's not as effective. And so here, uh, I think that the, the cooperative groups have adopted cetuximab as a strategy uh, for de-intensification, essentially, uh, recognizing that perhaps it's not as potent as cytotoxic chemotherapy, but is not necessary. It's not necessary to have that level of biologic effectiveness in these uh, tumors that are highly responsive to therapies. In a sense, there's a stratification that occurs, but it's prior to enrollment, so there are separate trials. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>